It's great to be back at Franklin Covenant. It really is. And to have my wife with me, which is a rare event for me. I travel almost full time and Shelly doesn't get to go most of the time. Shelly is uh, her part of her ministry is she's a nanny to a wonderful little boy three days a week. And so to be here with my wife is a great blessing. But I got to tell you, when when John and I settled on a date for me to come, I had such excitement and anticipation just to be back here and to touch base with the church. It was really uh, something I've been looking forward to. Uh, I live in Knoxville full time. I know I've been traveling too much. Last week I saw my face on a milk carton. You know, travel gets old. Last week I was in a hotel. It was called Motel Hello, but the O fell off. They said next year they're going to have pillows. And, and air travel. Air travel is even worse. You know, I went to the airlines last week. I said, I want this bag to go to Newark, this to go to Philadelphia, and this to Baltimore. They said, we can't do that. I said, why? You did last week. <laughs> but... uh I'm based out of Trinity Community Church, where Brother Jerry Wright's parents are the matriarch and patriarch of the church. Jack and Jean Wright. Great. Uh, Amen. We love Jack and Jean. It's such an honor to have them in our church and to see their lives together. And it's just wonderful and uh, uh, good to see Tommy and Bonnie Rickards that we got to know and living in Cape, Cape Coral, Florida, Shelley and I. We're there for about five and a half years. Got the pleasure of meeting them and knowing them. Looking forward to touching base. And I want to introduce a couple that came uh, uh, from Ducktown, Tennessee. Joe and there is a Ducktown, Tennessee, and I didn't know it till I met Joe and Dawn and their daughter uh, Bethany. I'm sorry, uh, and they drove up to be with us. So we met them. I guess it's been a couple of years now. Uh, they have mutual friends of a couple in our church that uh, got married a couple of years ago, and he's in his early 50s, and his wife is in her late 40s, and they, they just had a newborn baby. But uh, this is Joe and Dawn Placker and Bethany. Would you stand up, you guys? Great to have them. Looking forward to fellowshipping with them. Well, uh, I, you can pray for me. I told the men yesterday, I'm on my way in a couple of weeks to Poland, I've been working with Mark Medley in the nation of Poland. I didn't know when I started going to Poland that my own Jewish roots, my grandfather, came from Poland. And I didn't know that because my parents were divorced when I was very young. It wasn't until I started visiting Poland that I realized that I'm a Polish Jew. And uh, Poland is an unreached people group. I don't know if you know this. A 0.03% of the population is evangelical in Poland. So it's essentially an, an unreached people group. And we work with two networks. Mark Medley and I work with a network called God's Church in Christ. They have 70 churches scattered throughout the whole nation. Uh, we usually drive like madmen to touch as many conferences and con- congre- con- communions of, of leaders they, they bring together. This year, we're going to be doing a summer camp for leaders. And they're bringing the leaders to one location. So it's less wear and tear on Mark and I. Uh, and then I told the men last night. That uh, this is uh, this is proof for those of you who wondered. You've heard the statement: God can use. Excuse <coughs> me. God can use anything. Here's proof that that's true. There's an evangelist named Andrzej Gorski. He's become a dear friend to Mark and I. 
And uh, he was praying about how to reach the Polish people. There's an American movie that was a hit in Poland. You know what American movie was the greatest smash hit in Poland? Sister Act with Whoopi Goldberg. And this brother was praying. This is true. I'm not making this up. He was praying about how to reach the Polish people. And God dropped down in his heart an idea. said, put an ad in the paper offering to train Poles to sing and, and in a choir and learn the music to Sister Act. So Poles started coming out of the woodwork and they said, we saw the, the choir. They came to Knoxville and performed at Trinity. This is real. This is white Poles doing black gospel music. It was another dispensation, I'm telling you. And thank you. Thank you. And, uh, but then they, they, what they did, what Andrew did, is he started home Bible studies. When they come to the choir to learn the music, they don't preach the gospel to them. Then they invite them to what they call word zones, which are small Bible studies that they, uh, and, and they share the gospel with them and they're planting their first church. We're going to be with that church. Uh, the last day that I'll be there. So uh, pray for us. It's a, it's a great work that God's doing in Poland. And uh, we're excited to be part of it. I love John and Kathy Makinson. I get to hang with John monthly when we have our regional in White Pine, Tennessee. And it's great to be back. They have spoiled us rotten this weekend. It's really been great, their hospitality. Well, uh, <clears throat> what I feel that the Lord wants to speak this morning is found in Matthew 4. So if you'll turn there with me, and by the way, as you leave tonight, today, uh, on the, in the foyer, I have a book table. I brought two items from our library. Uh, I have actually three or four items, but this is a couple of them. If you've never read any of Deverne Framke's books, I would urge you. There's no prices on this. If you want to give an offering, fine. If you want to just take it, it's fine. But this is his main book. It's one of his first books, Ultimate Intention, and it's really a powerful work. It's really been life-changing to so many people. So there's a, another couple titles of Deverne's books on the foyer. Unto Full Stature, I think I brought that in Life's Ultimate Privileges book on devotion and prayer. And then I brought uh, some copies of my second music CD. This is Jewish music cut by Nashville players. Yeah, it really. We call it Jewgrass. That's what we call it. It works. It works. I don't know if you heard this, but did you see that, you know, there's been a running debate in Judaism when life begins? Did you know Jews have been debating this? Did you see that it was settled? Yeah, in Judaism, a fetus is not considered viable till it graduates medical school. So, all right. Now to the business at hand. Get that out of the way. In Matthew 4, I wonder if you would mind standing as I read God's word this morning. In Matthew 4 into chapter 5. This is the introduction and the Beatitudes, the introduction to Jesus Christ's kingdom manifesto. Beginning in verse 23 of chapter 4, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. 
Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all counts of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In verses 2 and 3 again, he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there is the kingdom of heaven. Father, we are rejoicing this morning that you have not only saved us, but you've called us to enter and live in the kingdom of heaven. So we pray those words you taught us and instructed us to pray for Franklin Covenant Church this morning. Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Help us to grasp in a significant, powerful way this morning the truth that we are now citizens of another realm. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. You may be seated. Do you know what we've read this morning? It is Messiah entering his most popular period in his earthly ministry. Matthew records that wherever the Son of Man goes at this time, huge crowds are following him. And he, he is constantly performing signs, healing the sick, raising the dead. And then in the middle of the revival, the Son of Man leaves the crowds and climbs a mountain and invites a special group to sit with him. I've seen that mountain in Israel and you would not stroll up it casually. Those who left the crowd and went to the mountaintop are called his disciples. And when he left the crowds, he sat down and his disciples came to him. Who are these disciples that climbed that mountain that day? Apparently, they're more than those who are just excited about Jesus and are hanging out in the crowds. Sign gawkers. We have them today. They'll show up wherever a crowd is and where God purports where they heard reports that God may be moving. There's nothing wrong with that. But Jesus notably leaves the crowd, ascends to the mountain, and calls another group to him that Matthew simply identifies as disciples. They were in the crowd. They observed Messiah's work, but they left the crowd and climbed the mountain to hear further teaching. Now, the word disciple has spiritual connotations today that it really doesn't have in the New Testament Greek Bible. The word is not a special word. It was a word in common usage in Jesus' day. In the simplest form, a disciple was simply a student or a learner. 
One who is a student of a certain instructor, but not a student in the way that we think of students today in the West. You know, during my school days, I remember all my high school days, all three of them. And during those days, you know, I didn't have a relationship with my teachers. It wasn't required. And if you knew some of my teachers, you wouldn't have wanted one anyway. All was required was me to come and sit and listen to the lectures and take good notes and pass the exams. But that idea of students passively sitting and listening to lectures is not the idea of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. The lexicon says that a disciple is, quote, always implies the existence of, of a personal attachment which shapes the whole life of the one described as a disciple. It is personal attachment to the teacher that separates out Jesus' disciples from those uh, I did the idea of discipleship in the modern world. In other words, a disciple is a follower of a certain teacher who is deeply attached to the one who is teaching. And this is a, an apt description of those. These were not men and women who were simply sign gawkers interested in seeing the show. These are men and women who wanted to follow Jesus. And now they're enrolled in a school in which they study a person. Unlike any other teaching, before I can understand these words of Jesus, I must have a personal relationship to the teacher. Isn't that good? Because his words make no sense at all until I am introduced to a relationship with the teacher. That is why the Sermon on the Mount assumes that one must have a relationship. It doesn't say it directly. It doesn't say anywhere in the Sermon on the Mount, you must be born again. But go ahead and try to live out the Sermon on the Mount without having been regenerated. Good luck. And as the disciples come to Jesus and he begins to teach them, what is the first thing he does? The first thing he does is give them a thorough description of what he intends for them to be and what they will be when he's finished working in their lives. We call them the Beatitudes. Let me say a couple of things about these qualities, because we're going to look at the first one in depth in a moment. But let me say a couple of things about these qualities. Number one, Jesus is not in the Beatitudes describing extraordinary believers. These are not people who somehow are exceptional Christians. The majority are not, but these guys are in another class. He isn't separating believers uh, as we do in the modern Western world, clergy, laity, those who make a vocation uh, of the Christian life and those who uh, do it as a hobby. Uh, the Beatitudes are describing what God intends for every believer to be who is following Jesus. This is not a description of different believers. You know, it's not that some believers are poor in spirit. They're called to be poor in spirit. Some are called to mourn. Others learn meekness. No, this God desires that every believer manifest all of these traits. This is a complete description of the character of every believer when God is working in it. Number two, how many have discovered it's not a description of natural tendencies? 
Some have mistakenly assumed that the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes in, in specific are, are, are a description of natural tendencies. You know, people have these different tendencies in their personality. These are not at all a description of how we are naturally. We will never learn any of these traits in the world. In fact, what we've learned is the opposite of what the Beatitudes are. Which, again, is why this sermon never says anywhere you must be born again. But it's implied by the fact that these qualities are radically different than anything we've ever learned from any teacher and anything we've ever learned in the world. We should be careful when we read these qualities that Jesus that we not, do not think of them as natural tendencies. There's more than natural tendencies here. These are supernatural and tendencies implanted in us through the new birth. When you read the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, when I read it the first time after my conversion, I knew that I agreed this is the way I should be. It made sense. The life of Jesus in me was pulsating. And, and these, these descriptions of Jesus, of these qualities, was really a description of what would have happened to me through the new birth. Now, I'm not fully living in the Beatitudes. I'm still, God's still working. Hallelujah. But this is the way I want to be. I want to be poor in spirit. I want to mourn. I want to learn to be meek. I want to hunger and thirst for righteousness. I, I want to be merciful. I want to be pure in heart. I want to be a peacemaker. And yes, I want to be persecuted. I know it will happen. Now, Jesus introduces each of these statements with the word blessed. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And some translators Modern translators have given us a good word, but dangerous for a Western audience. He said, happy, happy are those who are poor in spirit. That's a good translation of the word, but it is dangerous for Americans. Because of what we consider, you know, the old English word hap, happy comes from the old English word hap, H-A-P and hap. You know what hap was? Hap is luck. So the idea, if you uh, identify this by the word happy, the idea is I'm happy because things are going great. And by the luck of the draw, nothing bad's happened to me. I got a raise at work. I'm in good health. My family's together. I've got my cars paid off. My kids are in church. You know, I'm, I'm happy. Things have gone well. But that is not what the Beatitudes are teaching. This is not a description of people who are happy because life is turning out good for them. The fact, if you live the, the, the Beatitudes, you'll know that this is difficult at times. I mean, it literally says, happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Rejoice and sing for joy. But Jesus is saying... That the man or the woman who is truly happy is the one whose character is transformed to look like this. That's exactly what he's saying. Now, the whole world today seeks happiness, and it is right that they do so. Did you know you were hardwired by God to seek happiness? Did you know that no one ever does anything except in pursuant of their own happiness? It's true. It's not wrong to want to be happy. 
Someone took issue with me when I taught this once. They said, no, uh, I know someone who I, he said, I, I go to work every day. I'm not happy about going to work, but I trudge it out. I said, yes, but but the joy of receiving a big fat check at the end of the week is greater than the pain of working 50 hours. So therefore, it only proves the point. All men seek happy. Blaise Pascal, the great scientist. Uh, said something to that effect. All men seek happiness. Even those who kill themselves do so because they're convinced they're, that they'll be happier not alive than they would be remaining on this earth. Happy. But the vast majority of people who want to be happy are seeking it in the wrong way. The problem is not that the desire to be happy is wrong. It is tragic the way in which they pursue fulfilling that. The problem is not the desire. The problem is the way that we attempt to be happy. We, we think drugs, alcohol, sex, fame, power, these things we think will make us happy and fulfill us. The Amplified Bible helps us to understand that it, it says blessed, happy, and then inserts these three words to be envied is the man or the woman. And one other version says uh, uh, one commentary says the, the word implies enviably joyous, supremely happy with a joy that's criminal. I like that. Supremely happy with a joy that is criminal. The idea here is that this person is living life in such a way that they are to be envied. You know, this came into my sick brain, but it makes sense. Uh, you know, you, you, whenever you shop, you know, for your grocery store, you get to the aisle, the cashier, and they have those abominable magazines there. You know what I mean? I forget what the names are, but they're there. And they, they always put a, on the cover some rich person or some beautiful Hollywood starlet. And, and they're appealing to your envy. They're saying, your life is so boring. But why don't you read about Tom Cruise, who owns 60 houses and three planes. And, you know, and this starlet whose uh, fame is known and her beauty exceeds all. And it's, and it's appealing to buy the magazine out of envy. Well, the Beatitudes are agreeing with that, except they're saying the person on the cover should be the disciple. He or she is really living life in a way that should be envied. They should be on the cover, not the starlet or the actor. Because the blessed person, the happy person, is the person who is so following Jesus of Nazareth that their life is taking on the form of the Beatitudes and they are to be envied by all around them. Now, I want to say something you may not have ever considered. That the order of these words called the Beatitudes are not arbitrary. They are placed in relation to each other in a purposeful way. I didn't know this for years. I just thought these were random statements unrelated to each other that just are pushed to get put together by Jesus. But no, Jesus is building the best way to perhaps look at these the, the order in which these words are given is, and I haven't originated, this has been used before, but it's good. And that is, think of the Beatitudes as a mountain. When you, when you look up the, the left side of the mountain, you, uh, 
as you ascend it, they describe man's attitude towards God. But you might also refer to the three beginning Beatitudes on the left side of the mountain as our need, defining our need, poor in spirit, mourn, meek. These all have to do with understanding our condition because of sin and, and realizing how desperate we are. And when you get to the top of the mountain, you face a crisis. You realize that you're poor in spirit, mourn and meek. And then you realize there's only one help. And that is you need to be filled with a righteousness that's not your own. And so blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. When you reach the summit of the mountain, the only thing that can help you is your realization that I need another righteousness than my own human righteousness. Are, are, are you with me? And then when I'm filled with this righteousness, what does that look like? Well, when we come down the mountain, we have three descriptions of what our life is like when we're filled with a righteousness not our own. We'll be merciful. All of which, by the way, are attitudes we have towards other people because we've encountered a righteousness that's transformed us. And now we have a relationship with people based on God's mercy. We are pure in heart. And we are peacemakers. That's the description of disciples who allow the righteousness of God to fill them completely. And by the way, when you live this way, you'll get rewarded. You'll get the B'nai B'rith Award. You know what B'nai B'rith is? It's a Jewish award they give out every year. People will love you for this. They will applaud you. They will invite you and give you plaques. No. Jesus says, after you're filled with righteousness and you learn how to serve others and be merciful and pure in heart and peacemakers, that how will the world reward you? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. You won't be applauded by the world. You'll be persecuted. And that's the Beatitudes. The world hates you, not applauds you, and persecutes you when you become like Jesus. Our very presence, the Beatitudes teach, reminds them of their sin, and they will do everything in their power to rid themselves of us because we remind them of their sin. What they did to Him, Jesus says, they will do to you. Now let me take the remaining two hours. Let me take the remaining minutes. And unpack the first beatitude. Because as is often the case, if you grasp this one, you will have no problems. All the others fall into place. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What in the world does that mean? <clears throat> it comes at the beginning for the simple reason there is no entry into the kingdom of God without it. It is the fundamental description of the character of the disciple. And all other characteristics of the disciple fall into place when you grasp this one. And in a sense, it is the result of the mountain I just referred to. Here's what this beatitude is teaching. Follow this carefully. I come to the mountain. In fact, it was when I moved from Miami, Florida to Silva... In 1976, I had grown up in Philadelphia and in Miami. There aren't many mountains. 
And I remember when the guy picked me up at the Asheville airport and, and I was driving to Silva and I'd see a mountain in the distance and I'd say to him, I want to climb that. And it looked like it was climbable until we got to the base. And I looked up and realized my eyes were bigger than my reality. Well, that's the first one. You stand at the mountain, you look up, you're overwhelmed with the height, and you say, I could never climb that. And Jesus applauds you and says, if you know that, you are so blessed. If you know that you cannot do this, how blessed you are. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You are to be congratulated, he says, if you really know that. And this beatitude is actually congratulating us for our inability to live this way. Because it's meant to give me a proper view of God and therefore a proper view of myself. Notice, Jesus did not say, blessed in spirit are the poor. This is not a monetary blessing or the lack thereof. Many commentators have used this to say that Jesus was commending poverty as spirituality. He is not commending poverty as spirituality. Poverty in itself does not make a person spiritual. Although many of God's people are poor, it is not in itself the guarantee of spirituality. What the Lord is concerned here with is poverty of spirit. And in this beatitude, maybe more than itself, than any other, you can really see the difference between the world and the Christian. Being poor in spirit is not only not admired by the the world, how many know it's despised? The world's emphasis, I was never taught by my father to be poor in spirit. Uh, The message was, no, pull yourself up to your bootstraps. You can do it. Be self-confident. Be self-reliant. Go out and win the world. That's what we tell our kids if we're not raising them in Christ. And unfortunately, that attitude is often evident in the church as well. Now, let's be clear on what this quality is of poor in spirit. It does not mean suppression of personality. You know, I used to think humility meant I sit in the corner with folded hands, never venturing an opinion. And I'm poor in spirit. I'm humble. But that's not it at all. Do you know in Greek there are two Greek words for poverty or poor? One is the word which implies um, to be in need, generally needy. The other word means to be totally destitute. So destitute that you're reduced to begging. Guess which word Jesus used to describe the disciple. Not a man who's occasionally needy and occasionally needs a little bit of help, but the man or the woman who is absolutely destitute. So destitute they are reduced to begging. That, Jesus says, is how you enter the kingdom. What does a beggar's life revolve around? It revolves around receiving what he or she needs from others. They are totally dependent on others supplying for them. They don't have within themselves. They have nothing. This is the essence of what it means to be poor in spirit. The disciple, Jesus says, the true disciple is a pauper. Not financially, but he, he or she exists By receiving from another all that they need. Now, this shouldn't be shocking if you're a Bible reader. 
Go back to the garden. Go back to God placing a man and a woman in a perfect environment. First Adam before he came along. Adam was created to be totally dependent on God for everything. The first tree that provided fruit for Adam and Eve in the garden. It wasn't a tree that Adam had to plant and cultivate. It was already there. It was already producing fruit. All Adam had to do was reach out and take and take his nourishment. It was provided for him perfectly in a perfect garden. And it was man's glory... To be the taker, to be dependent. It wasn't a shameful thing. It was the way things are. I am a creature and God is my creator and my need meter. And I am totally dependent on him for everything. And this wasn't shameful. It was right. It was the way things were. But into the garden soon after creation came an alternative voice. Or an alternative explanation. And I'm not quoting it literally, but I'm commenting on it. I think it's there. When you look at what the serpent said to Eve, he comes along and says, Eve, you don't want to be the taker the rest of your life, do you? Don't you know who you are? If you take of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall be as God. And her ears perked up because she was created to be like God. But the P.S. was, you can be like God, independent of God. You don't have to be this creature that's a ta- that is dependent and, and having to receive. Find out who you are. Shunt God off and awake and find out who you are. That's what the temptation was. It's the devil turning holiness preacher. You shall be as God. But you don't need God to obtain it. It's the voice of untruth. You don't want to be dependent all your life, do you? And Adam and Eve made a fateful choice. No longer to be the takers. And they left the garden under the deception that they can now make it on their own, independent of God. Oh, they created religion later to sort of invoke blessing and look spiritual. But the reality is they were in control of their destiny. They were not creatures anymore that were dependent on God. They could find their own way. And somebody pointed out in our men's meeting yesterday about Cain and Abel, because Abel, I'm sorry, Cain brought the fruit of his hands, the fruit of his soil, I think, uh, Seth was pointing this out, and he was, uh, and and he was uh, the, the the man that comes to God with his own works. He's been toiling in the soil, and he comes and presents it to God, and God rejects it because God will not be satisfied with human work to attain righteousness. It doesn't happen. This is why there's one characteristic of everybody God calls after the garden scene in the Bible. Everybody shares one major characteristic. He's always choosing people who can do nothing. Abraham, I'd like you to have a family more numerous than the stars in the heavens. And I'd like you to start at a hundred. We'll wait you out a few years. Start this process when you're a hundred. Now, could, could Abraham do anything about that? Sarah's in the tent. She's 90. She can't get out of bed. 
And God's speaking prophetically about having seed more numerous than the stars in the heavens. Now, Abraham did think he could contribute later. He got tired of waiting. And Ishmael was born as a result. But that was a disaster. God comes along and says, I'll bless Ishmael because he came from you, but he's not the one you're going to have in a year. You're going to have a son. And Sarah's in the tent laughing. Moses, I'd like you to deliver Egypt, Israel from Egypt. But be a shepherd for 40 years because I'll start you when you're 80. When Moses was general commander of Egypt's army, which many Jewish commentators suggest he was. The Bible doesn't, but it's possible. He was in the court. He was learned in all the ways of Egypt. He had military experience. He was there in the court. He was perfectly situated. God says, no, you need 40 years of shepherding and I'm going to take you in obscurity and break you before I use you. And you'll know you're ready to be used when you're absolutely convinced you can't do this. And remember the conversation on Sinai? I love it. It's one of my favorite stories. Moses trying to convince God he made the wrong choice. Lord, I don't know if you've checked lately, but I don't speak well. I stutter. I'm not the man that can confront Egypt. And God says one thing to Moses. I love it. He doesn't say, thank you for pointing that out. I overlooked that. I forgot that you're not talented when it comes to the oral arena. And thank you for that. No, he says, uh, don't worry. I will be with you. That's all you need to know. And Moses got that because later when he's leading Israel out of Egypt, he says, if your presence does not go with us and you don't give us rest, we're not going. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he said. And everybody who's called of God shares this one quality. They know they can't do it. They're utterly dependent on God for it to happen. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed, one translation of newer translation said, blessed are those who know how bankrupt they are. And again, this is nothing we've ever learned from the world. We don't have, you know, you're not going to be going to a motivational seminar on discovering your own bankruptcy. And you won't hear much of it in the church either. But think of the benefits of being poor in spirit. Living this way makes life so much easier. I mean, you can't boast about anything because you've received everything. It's so much easier getting along with others because if you know you're a beggar, if you have something they don't and they got something from God that you don't have, you're all beggars. So what difference does it make? It removes strife and envy And quarreling, because you're a beggar and I'm a beggar and we get everything. What have uh, Paul will tell the Corinthian church? What do you have that you did not receive? If you received it, why are you boasting? And so the Beatitudes begin with this unraveling of this quality of bankruptcy in spirit. And it calls us to recognize 
that our ability to trust God for everything is at the core of what it means to live in the kingdom. He will go on to say, blessed are those who mourn. If you're poor in spirit, you've discovered something about yourself. You're a sinner, a member of a sinful race. Mourning here is not blessed are those who are despondent or tend towards depression. It's mourning over the fact that I've seen what I'm really like and it ain't good, a good picture. Mourning is always the response of God's people to the presence of sin. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Isn't that a contradiction? Blessed are those who mourn. And then he says, blessed are those who meek. It's a word that's difficult to translate. It's, it's some versions say, blessed are the gentle. But, but basically, it's blessed are the yielded. You see it in Abraham when Lot, you know, challenged him and said, uh, and there was strife between Lot and his herdsmen and Abraham's herdsmen and he came. Remember Abraham who has who owns the land who God promised to give the land to, but he comes and, and Abraham who could have said to Lot, Get out of here, Lot, I'm the man who's been given the promises. You're you're along for the ride. Go find your own deal. He didn't say that. Remember Abraham's gentle, yielding attitude? Let there be no strife between me and you. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. And Lot took him up on it and looked down at the Sodom Valley and saw the prosperity of the valley cities. And he went down there, which is disastrous for Lot, who almost lost his life. And when he's gone, God says to Abraham, lift up your eyes northward, southward, eastward, westward for all the land that you see. I will give to you. He was deeded everything because he learned to be meek. He wasn't grasping. He was yielding to God his rights. And then, as I said, we come to the grand summit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You know, we really don't know what that means. Most of us this morning had a good breakfast. We'll, we'll eat a nice lunch. We occasionally get hungry at work. But, but, but those that Jesus is speaking to, they know what hunger is. They understand what true hunger is and thirst. And Jesus says, blessed are those. One trait that all saints have shared through the ages is they have an incredible, ferocious appetite for God. Let me talk about this for a little bit and then we'll close. That's one trait that all saints share through the ages. Hunger for God. Thirsting for God. So hungry and thirsty for God that I feel it. There's a saint that wrote a great devotional. I can't remember the title, but he made this statement. God is not to be found by the casual inquirer. God is not. Do you want more of God in your life? If so, where is that desire on the scale of your other desires? Is it the O that Paul exclaims? I talked about it with the men yesterday at the last session. Oh! Oh! That I may know Him. 
And that O oh, is that bellyache. It's not like, well, it would be nice. I, I just don't have time these days, but it would be nice to be hungry for more. No, no, it's the cry from the depths of Pauline, Paul's heart. Oh, that I may know him. Oh. And you see that word appear elsewhere. I want a Davidic heart. I want to be able to say what David said in Psalm 27. One thing. How many? One thing. It doesn't mean that there are other things I, can, I need, not, don't need to attend to. But one thing have I desired of the Lord. That will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. And inquiring in His temple. One thing. It's the same one thing that Jesus told Martha she had missed out on. Because she was distracted from the person of Jesus because she was trying to serve Jesus. <laughs> and remember what Jesus says when he calls her on the carpet and says, Martha, Martha, how many know when the Lord calls your name twice, you're in trouble? <laughs> Martha, Martha, you are troubled about many things. Only a few things are necessary. Really only one. That's what the Greek text says. Really only one in Luke 10. It's not that making dinners is not important at times. There, but, but Jesus is saying, what is the primary thing that your heart seeks? What are you seeking the one thing, which is to know Him and to be filled with His righteousness? That's all implied in this grand statement at the summit of the mountain. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Someone said to me not long ago, you know, your life's blessed. You get to be in full-time misery, ministry. Uh, sorry, I get those mixed up. And I said to them, I said, you know, I, I agree. I appreciate what I get to do. It's, I can't imagine doing anything else. I've been doing it for 45 years. I love it. I can't imagine anything else. But the joy of my heart is not ministry. It's that I get to know Jesus. And I still have a hunger in many ways, arguably even greater than I had early. I still hunger and thirst. I still love rising in the morning and opening the Word of God and getting on my face and reading and praying. Those, I still want more of Jesus. How's your hunger level these days? How's your thirst level? Is it growing and increasing? You know, uh, when I got saved as a Jew, I read part of the uh, Tanakh. In Hebrew, and I discovered that in Isaiah 9, 6, the great Christmas text, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful is a, a, a fair translation, but if you were to translate that literally, it would read this way. His name shall be called Surprise. That's what the word implies, surprise. But the translators didn't like us. They gave us wonderful, but I like surprise. Because how many have discovered the moment you think you know Him and you've exhausted all the riches of this Christ, He enfolds another aspect of His person to you and you are utterly surprised that there's so much more of Him than you bargained for. That's when that, that's that word, oh, that I may know Him. Wonderful. Surprise. He show, this is the, you know... John lays his head in his bosom at the Last Supper table, but John falls at his feet as a dead man when he sees the glorified Lord in the Revelation. 
The fact remains, folks, is Jesus is a lot bigger this morning than your present revelation of Him. So, be thou disturbed. This is not for the casual. This is for the radical who are hungry. And then we're filled with another righteousness. And why are we filled with another righteousness? That we might come down the mountain into the sin-sick world, carrying the mercy of God with pure hearts, looking at men's hearts, not at their outward, and being peacemakers, entering into disputes. We, peace, we bring peace to wherever we go according to the Gospel. That's what evangelism is. It's bringing peace by first reconciling men to God and then reconciling man to man. And we understand, as I close here, we understand that we will inevitably, when we open our mouths and try to sow peace into a world of discord, we will be persecuted and maligned and hated. They're not going to give us an award because we're meek. They're going to strike out at us. If the world hates you, the Master said, do not be surprised because it hated me before it hated you. Would you stand with me this morning? Such a pleasure to share the gospel with you this morning, to reconnect with Franklin Covenant. And I want to pray a prayer this morning. Maybe there's a particular beatitude this morning that really the Spirit underlined in your heart that He's doing. I talked yesterday to the men about a period in my life when God was breaking me of pride and it was a very painful period and uh, but it, I learned to abide it so I want to pray for you as a whole let's pray that the Holy Spirit will take these words of Jesus and, and again if you feel you know uh, study these as a whole but there may be one the Lord is zeroing in on in your life right now Father we come in the name of Jesus again thank you for these words that you spoke at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Lord, I speak for all my brothers and sisters in this room. I want to be like that. I want to be poor in spirit. I want to mourn. I want to meek, be meek. I want to be hungry and thirsty for righteousness. I want to be merciful. I want to be pure in heart. I want to be a peacemaker. And I want, Lord God, I'm willing to be persecuted knowing that if I open my mouth and preach the Gospel, that You will... Inevitably, it will bring rancor and anger, but we're willing to face that so we can preach the gospel to a sin-sick world. And I pray this morning for any who are sick among us, Lord. I pray that You would stretch out Your hand and touch them this morning. Lord, we don't even have to lay hands. Your power is here and Your presence is real in this house. And I pray for You to stretch forth Your hand this morning to heal in Jesus' name. And I particularly sense, Lord, You're healing people's backs. People that have back trouble. If you have back trouble of any kind, you're willing, would you come up here quickly, everybody? This won't take long, but just come on up. And I want to, I want to pray for you. The Lord, uh, you know, the, the Bible talks about gifts of healing, plural gifts. There's different manifestations of the way healing occurs. The Lord has been healing backs in a lot of the meetings that I've been doing around the country. So I want to pray for backs this morning. Anybody else want to join? Uh, come on out quickly. It doesn't matter what issue you have, the Lord is here.
Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank You for these brothers and sisters. I thank You for powerfully touching them this morning. I pray in Jesus' name for healing of these backs. In Jesus' name. In el nombre de Jesus, grant it, Father. In Jesus' name, Lord, grant healing to the backs of my brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name. Thank You, Lord. 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 Thank You, Lord, for healing this morning. In Jesus' name. Take away all these back pains, Lord. In Jesus' name. Thank You, Lord. Father, touch my sister in this morning in her back area, wherever it hurts, wherever the pain is. I pray for total healing in Jesus' mighty name. Thank you, Lord. I feel there's, there's a person here who's having severe neck pain. I don't know what the condition is, but there's a healing going on in the neck area. That's you. Move your neck. Sometimes, is that you, buddy? Come on up. Lift your hands to Jesus. Father, thank you for my brother, Lord. Thank you for healing his neck right now. In Jesus' name. Oh, Father, go into the tendons, the muscles, the, the bone structure, whatever needs to be adjusted. I pray in Jesus' name that it would be adjusted this morning and all pain would leave him. In Jesus' name, be made whole. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Just wait on the Lord for another minute. Father, I pray for the assembly this morning, Franklin Covenant Assembly. Thank you for the life of this church. Thank you for the peace in the house in this season. Lord, I pray, Father God, for uh, inroads. I pray for kingdom advancement. I'm asking you bless us, break us, and distribute us to hungry multitudes. I pray for God, uh, kingdom opportunity to come to every member of Franklin Covenant, Lord. Give opportunity for kingdom advancement. I pray for doors. We knocked this morning for doors for the Word. You said, knock and the doors shall be open. I pray that a holy agitation would fill hearts, Lord, and You would agitate us. Lord, give us the spirit of Rachel who cried out, give me children or else I die. And we pray that for Franklin Covenant, that there would be an increased appetite for gospel preaching and You would add to the church regularly and consistently those who are being saved. We pray for evangelism to sprout up naturally and in a flowing way, not in a forced way, not a religious guilt trip, but Lord, just out of the depths of the hearts of my brothers and sisters, the Gospel would start to be shared and it would be powerful, Father. Thank You, Lord. Amen. Well, I thank God again for the opportunity to be here. Amen. Give the Lord a clap, offering.
I'll be willing to pray with anyone else that needs prayer. We're going to release the meeting. I'm going to turn it back over to John. It's uh, great to be here in this visit.